Water is fundamental to human development, from drinking water and sanitation to agriculture and more. You listen to Water Stories, a podcast series where you will learn everything about securing water, energy, and food security for all of us. Smallholder farmers are essential for communities and our planet's protection. Smallholders are the stewards of the land, soil, and forest. Integrating smallholders in the value chain is critical to more sustainable water, land use, biodiversity, etc. In this episode of Water Stories, we will discuss with our guests how to empower smallholder farmers to lift themselves out of poverty and how this exciting goal is linked with the Stockholm Environment Institute initiative, Water Vision Boundaries. My co-host for this episode is Vishal Mehta. Vishal is an environmental scientist with vast experience in water resource research at the Stockholm Environment Institute. Vishal, how are you? I'm so happy to have you again as a co-host. I'm very good, JC. It's good to be back. I'm very excited about uh, today's episode. Yeah. So let's introduce our guest to the audience, Vishal. Sure. Our guest today is Rikin Gandhi. He is the CEO and co-founder of Digital Green, an organization that works with smallholder farmers in India, Ethiopia, Nepal, Nigeria, and Kenya, and uh, a friend of mine who just moved to Davis, California. So welcome, Rikin. It's great to have you. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me, Vishal. Good to meet you, JC. Oh, Ricking, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I bet you are having a great time in California. I would like to start this conversation by asking you, what inspired you to be the leader and found a digital green to help farmers in the rural areas? To me, education is crucial. Please, can you elaborate a little bit what inspired you to create this very important organization? Sure. It was basically back in 2006 that I was joining some friends who were starting up a biodiesel venture in rural Maharashtra in a state in Western India, where I first landed up with these heroes who were farmers in their own right, who were bringing together brains and brawn to make the world's second largest farm productivity, but were dealing with all the challenges of climate and market and the rest. And so many of these farmers were looking to migrate out of farming to urban cities, while a small minority saw farming as a source of prosperity. And that was what was my source of inspiration to see how could we bring these two disparate communities closer together. Well, that's great inspiration, my friend. Vishal. Yeah, Rikin, uh, I guess I, I would just start off for our listeners by asking you what aspects of this community are you and your team trying to improve? And uh, are there particular approaches and methods that you're using? Yeah, we basically work with grassroots level organizations that are already trying to support these small scale farming communities. These are farmers with less than an acre worth of land typically and earning just two to three dollars per day. And they're dealing with all these vagaries of climate change with increasing weather variability, deteriorating soil conditions, market conditions that remain super dynamic. And essentially what we do in partnership with these grass level organizations of government and of various not-for-profits that are running farmer training programs is that we train them to produce short eight to 10 minute videos that are by farmers and for farmers to share sustainable agriculture practices more effectively amongst these farming communities 
and to collect data and feedback from these very same communities to make these programs all the more targeted and impactful. Ricky, speaking about small videos, clips that they are producing, how was the first the reaction when they interact, maybe for first time with, with technology or with maybe with iPhones or Android phones? How was uh, the reaction of the women and men that work in the farms? So these videos are produced primarily offline using just handy cams on tripods with microphones and feature local individuals really as the stars, sharing their testimonials, demonstrating a practice to share with their peers. And then the videos are also shown offline using mobile battery operated projectors into the existing groups of farmers like women's self-help groups and others that are coming together every fortnight and where a facilitator from the village isn't just passively showing a video, but is engaging the community in questions and answers in a dialogue as this video is being shown and also to provide support afterwards. Mm -hmm. And the first two questions that people ask when they watch these videos mm -hmm. is not about the return on investment or economics of the practice featured in the video, but rather what's the name of the person in the video and which village is he or she from really to see if this is somebody relatable and trustworthy that if they can do it, then this farmer who's watching the video could consider it for themselves. That's great. And also have a, a, community, a sense of community. It helps, you know, the people know each other, share their own stories about how they're doing and presenting themselves, by the way. Right. I was just wondering, Rickin, can you describe what kinds of videos they tend to make and share? Is it, you know, at all stages of, of, the, of the cycle? Is it like from pre-production, preparation stages through production and post-production that they tend to share videos about? It's a pretty wide diversity of content. There's now 7,000 videos in 50 different languages. They're actually all available on YouTube in addition to being shown offline in the way that I mentioned. They span from everything from crop planning and crop selection. Uh, since many farmers are having to sw switch some of their choices, given that some locations are now seeing increased flooding or increased incidences of drought. So some farmers are having to switch from, for instance, rice production systems to, in some cases, to pigeon pea. And there's also, a, throughout the production season, there's also specific practices related to, for instance, alternate wetting and drying so that farmers just maintain a flooded paddy plot, but instead are maintaining a, a moisture level in their soils, given also, again, the limitations of water availability that many of these farmers are faced by. And then there's also stuff on the post-harvest element, since obviously from an economic point of view, farmers are interested in what do buyers want to see in terms of the quality and grade standards that they might need to meet. So yeah, it's a it's a pretty pretty wide basket of content that we feature. Ricky, what kind of um, the crops these farmers produce? It's just rice or because the, the pea, I, I watched some videos about the pea and read about it as well. Probably cattle or another kind of, of veggies, coffee, I don't know. Yeah, so these are half acre to one acre types of farmers. They're small by any definition. And as a result, they're very diversified. And they're doing a lot of the production first to maintain their own food sufficiency in their own households. So they're going to do a mix of cereal staple production, like rice, wheat, maize types of staples, plus some horticulture of vegetables. Oftentimes they'll have you know, two or three animals, right? Like a dairy or, or a goat. So it, it'll be an integrated system. And, and that's also why the basket of this content that is going to be relevant to these farmers also needs to be equally diverse. Yeah, I was wondering uh, at that scale, you know, most of the farming is probably 
uh, rain-fed farming and uh, is also probably geared towards subsistence farming. Yeah, these are mostly rain-fed dependent farmers. I'd say that less than 20% of the farmers have some irrigation well that is available to them. Yeah, as a result, yeah, they they are, are these more diversified farmers who are dealing with all these vagaries of the climate firsthand. You know, Ricky, something that I really enjoy when I watch some of the videos of Digital Green is that, for example, it's not only about cattle, agriculture fields, soils, etc., which is which is great, right? And it's the main point. Something that I really like the idea, for example, when the men are helping women, the video when a man was teaching two women how to wash their hands and how important it is for everyone to wash wash their hands with soap at critical times during the day. You know, this is very, very, very important. So not just focus on cattle or the agriculture, etc., as I mentioned, just prevent a future or illness or disease. Very, very, very important. Yeah, these are, of course, you know, holistic communities with holistic interests and needs. And that's why we really institutionalize this whole activity of producing and showing content, not with us. We're not the ones producing any of these films. We really put it into the hands of these communities and these grassroots level government and NGOs that are working with them, since they really uh, understand the, these uh, interests better than any of us could. Yeah, certainly uh, they are related. Vishal, I have a question for you. In terms of water management, how does the work of Digital Green match with the Stockholm Environment Institute initiative Water Beyond Boundaries, which is part of this season, the second season of this podcast? Yeah, as you know, that uh, agriculture is the largest user of water, um, sectorally speaking. And within agriculture, you know, the smallholder farmer is a very specific community where we find the intersection of SEI's interests uh, coming together on working on equity and working on water resources and livelihoods together. And so in that sense, um, you know, it's important to think about not just water beyond boundaries, but also think beyond water itself. And in fact, one of my questions for Rickin was that, you know, there are many risks that this community faces. And how would you put, say, water access and water management in context with some of the other risks, Rickin, that they face? Are there some that are overwhelmingly the predominant challenge, for example, access to finance or land tenure? Or is it just this whole mix of it uh, 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 like leads to their vulnerability? I'd say that it certainly is a mix, but water is definitely at like the top most levels for most of these farmers. It relates to both like the macro level watershed about how uh, they consider watershed management committees and certain types of constructions like setting up trenches and buns to conserve the water that uh, falls uh, from the rain um, and maximize, you know, the recharge all the way to the individual uh, types of practices that farmers can do from applying compost to this alternate wetting and drying practice for rice farmers that can help uh, to reduce some of their usage of water and as a result also minimize the risk that they're facing with uh, depleting groundwater levels. Ricky, I have a question. I know the Digital Green is working in Nigeria, Ethiopia, Kenya, Nepal, and here as well in the United States, I guess. If I ask you what these countries or these farmers in those countries have in common, what would you say? They all have a uh, 
still a majority of these farmers outside of the U.S., a majority of the farmers who are still small-scale farming communities, 80% of uh, farmers in India, Ethiopia, Kenya, or more are these farmers who have just one to two acres worth of land. And they're very small, they're diversified. And what unites them is that they obviously are trying to build up their resilience from a climate point of view. And they are wanting to become more viable from a commercial point of view. Um, and that's what Digital Green and our partners have been seeking to enable them to do. And what about the data when they performance, you know, the, the videos or you guys have has access closely to this data? How is, um, how is the performance? Is it public data? Is just within the community or for the community? Or you guys are in charge to, to see what's going on? In the data they obtain from the performance of each, uh, let's see, each video or content that they're producing? Yeah. So we started with data and content that was primarily anchored on these government extension systems. And we're using videos so that it could go out more efficiently to more farmers and, and impact them as they apply these practices on their own farms. Increasingly, as Farmers, even in the most remote parts of India or Kenya, are coming online with smartphones and such. What we're now doing is trying to put this generation and consumption of data really in the hands of these farmers and the farmer organizations themselves. And we think that's possible because of this connectivity and such that is expanded now. And give them the agency and choice to decide who they want to share their data with and how. So we see the first groups that want to use this data are the farmers themselves to benchmark themselves with their peers, looking at these videos, buying for farmers, to look at what prices farmers are getting within their farmer organization to see where they might be able to get a better deal. But then also to enable these very same farmers and farmer organizations to share their data with other third parties of their own choice, whether it's a researcher who's trying to build a crop or a water model or a buyer who might want to know what kinds of practices a group of farmers followed that they might be willing to give them some price premium to purchase against. Yeah, Rikin, I was wondering uh, if uh, over time you have um, intentionally tried to strengthen the capacity of the extension agencies and workers that uh, you work with, or is it still more a direct focus on the community that Digital Green has? Yeah, I would say that like from the very beginning of these extension agents of the government um, and other NGOs who are working at a grassroots level have in some ways been like the first user of the videos that are being produced. They're the ones who are involved in, in making sure that the technical integrity and correctness of this information that is being exchanged among these communities is maintained. And then they're the ones that also watch these videos for the first time because Often what happens in these large-scale extension systems, like for instance, Ethiopia has more than 70,000 extension agents across the country, three per village. There's a ton of variability in their orientation and know-how of what are they supposed to promote to whom. But by looking at these videos themselves before they screen them to fellow farmers in their villages that they operate in, they actually end up increasing their quality and their consistency of, of how they operate. Interesting. Ricky, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I attended an event at MIT, and one of the speakers mentioned about her company is focused on cocoa, macadamia, and coffee. But she shared a very interesting point. 
that the, the company is working in nature-based solutions because they will support agricultural production, resilience, and mitigating climate change, etc. And for example, she mentioned a very interesting project in Central America about bird-friendly coffee. My question is, why kind of nature-based solution in these farmers in Nigeria, Ethiopia, Kenya, you see potential to work with? I think there's a huge potential for, for these nature-positive and climate-smart agriculture practices. Yeah, of course, we have to think about the incentives that these farmers have to apply these practices. If there's, for instance, like a buyer of this bird-friendly coffee who is willing to pay a premium price for that uh, coffee that follows those types of practices, Farmers will, of course, do them. Or if there are also, in some cases, practices that can increase uh, yield scale emissions, right? Where farmers' productivity still increases while they're reducing their water use and their uh, also their greenhouse gas emissions, farmers will apply that because then they're reducing their cost of inputs like fertilizers, potentially. But I think these need to be seen from like that incentive point of view, because for these farmers, especially in like the types of countries that we're operating in, they're in a lot of ways, small, diversified farmers already contributing pretty significantly to building sustainability of their agroecology. Um, and in some ways, people need to be willing to incentivize and pay more for that um, since they're actually a net positive. Exactly. Totally net positive. Just to take that a uh, little further, Rikin, uh, so is there, have, have you thought of trying to link these types of uh, climate smart agriculture, organic agriculture, nature-based solutions? Have you tried to uh, link up, you know, urban markets, these farmers such that they could get that premium? For sure. Yeah, we've definitely been involved. And, and that's kind of where these farmer collectives have a big role to play. Because buyers in like any buyers, whether it's like a exporter of coffee or it's like a local domestic purchaser of rice, generally is not going to be transacting with an individual half acre to one acre farmer. That's just too small volumes and the transaction costs of interacting with them are too high. They deal with them at like this group level. But by working together with these like farmer groups who are applying these climate smart, uh, sustainable agriculture practices, then there can be like a win-win for these farmers to apply these practices and for them to tap into some of these premium markets to get re remunerated for those practices. So how do you influence, like, uh, I'm glad you brought up that issue of scale because I'd been thinking of the half acre to one acre scale. It's just so small that, you know, if you, it's hard for me to imagine that one can produce more than for one's family, you know, going beyond subsistence at that scale. So... That means that you have to persuade or, you know, encourage a, a collective, a group of farms, a group of villages to come together and do a certain kind of practice and produce certain types of crops in certain types of ways to achieve that collective bargaining um, with the urban markets where, you know, they will play, pay top dollar, so to speak. So how do you approach that side of it? Totally. And... I'd say that there's a, a huge foundational base that already exists that we're able to piggyback on. A lot of these governments, uh, like the government of India, Kenya, Ethiopia, and the like, have invested in uh, mobilizing farmer groups. Initially, typically these women self-help groups who are involved in microcredit and savings or other types of farmer groups at a small level, at like a 15 to 25 person level, 
increasingly, these very same governments are now aggregating these smaller groups into bigger cooperatives and farmer producer companies with like 500 to 1,000 members. And they're trying to build up their capacity to be able to better engage with their membership and transact with the marketplace. And that's where we intervene, right within that nexus of how do the individual members of these farmer groups be able to better coordinate and collaborate with these uh, larger institutions, right, at the leadership of their farmer group level or amongst these governments that are uh, supporting them. And Ricking, does the app you guys use help with the purpose and goals uh, that Digital Green propose? Because it's a very interesting app. Yeah, what we're trying to do is to create a decentralized application so that it's not that we're owning everyone's data, but rather that the farmer groups are able to customize what is the data that they need of their members. Uh, for instance, who wants a particular seed variety or a particular fertilizer? Who is producing a particular commodity that they might make some forward contract with? And so giving that power of deciding how they frame up these questions to their members and farmers can respond to them, how they can share advice and benchmark with the, their membership. That's what we're trying to enable, really to put these farmers and farmer organizations really at the center of leveraging this technology for their own growth and development. That's great. Michelle, is there anything that you would like to add to this conversation? I was thinking that of uh, going back to you know Digital Green's focus on empowering women farmers, and I was wondering if uh, Rikin can relate a story he has related to me about the challenges of uh, doing that in the countries that uh, they work in. Especially, I'm remembering Rikin a story you told me about uh, from Afghanistan about how women farmers were encouraging each other within the women communities in the context of, of life in Afghanistan. So I was wondering if you could share that for our listeners. Happy to, yeah. I'm, the lion's share of agricultural labor is done by women. It has been done uh, in the past, and it's only increasing as uh, a number of young men are often migrating to cities for various types of construction and other types of work. At, at the same time, these women are not having so much power when it relates to land tenure. And these extension systems often are dominated by men uh, who have sometimes have cultural barriers with respect to how they can interact uh, with, with women. So uh, an example that I shared with Vishal was that we were working in Afghanistan. Uh, there was a huge uh, gender structural uh, dynamic issue in that a video of a woman Uh, could not be shown culturally to a group of male farmers. It was just not done, and it could actually put uh, women at risk if they did so. And so what we did was we trained up a whole cater of women who could produce their own films, women who could be featured with, as uh, stars in these films, women who would facilitate the screening of these films as extension agents, and women who would watch these films by maintaining that that gender across uh, this communities, we we're able to see a lot of take up of these uh, practices because these farmers uh, ultimately are women who are executing them. But that was really important for us to understand. You know what, uh, Ricky, I want to reinforce something that, that you have mentioned. When you said net positive, all that you mentioned right now has to do with a great book, Net Positive by Paul Polman, when he shared all the things that you are 
sharing with, with our audience about ESG, for example, very important points, people, planet, performance, be good for the society and good also for the business. For If we are speaking about the smallholders, for example, focus on sustainable products that can contribute to the economy where they operate, inclusivity, as you mentioned, the well-being of the farmers, designation of origin and so on. So it's very interesting this valid point. Ricking, is there anything you would like to add before wrapping up? I, yeah, I'd just say I agree with you. And our work is built on the existing informal social networks that these farmers already have with each other. They already share information with their neighbors, with their family members about what crops they grow and how they grow them. What we've seen is that there's a real opportunity to build on those networks and leverage technology to build bridges. We've even had examples where a widowed woman was ostracized physically to the outskirts of her village, but by featuring her in a film, demonstrating a biofertilizer that was showing a positive impact, her fellow farmers brought her into the village center to say that, well, this was somebody that we thought we couldn't learn from, but now we actually see it as a role model for ourselves. And I think really understanding these community dynamics and their incentives is so critical for us all to have a bigger impact in this space. Certainly. More more role models, more more success will we have. Vishal. Well, I just want to thank Rickin for his time. And, you know, I uh, from what Rickin just mentioned at the end, I was thinking about uh, how one would measure the impact of one's work. And, and uh, you know, people talk about all kinds of metrics, and I'm sure Digital Green has their own way of doing this formally. But uh, these stories are a very important way of recognizing the impact that we can make. Ricking, where people can find more information about Digital Green? I'd encourage folks to check out our website at digitalgreen.org. Perfect. Thank you, Ricking, for your time. Thank you, Vishal. Next to the next time. Thanks, JC. Thanks, Vishal. <laughs> next time. Thanks all. Thank you so much, everyone. Don't forget to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Alexa, Amazon Music. Thank you so much, everyone. Until the next episode.